Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Chad Randall at Life Story Church. We are a grassroots church located in the heart of the Bellevue community in Nashville, Tennessee. Our services are streamed live on Facebook and YouTube every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time. We would love for you to join us. Now here's Pastor Chad Randall. So foundations, foundations of our faith, essentially what we believe and why we believe it is what we're trying to dig into the last several weeks. And tonight we move into our uh, fifth part of this online Wednesday night message series titled An Introduction to Prophecy. An Introduction to Prophecy. To be a student of prophecy, you have to be willing to challenge traditions. You understand that? So I hope that you have an open mind as you're tuning in tonight, because I may be challenging some of your traditions on how you interpret the Word of God and interpret things, okay? But to be a student of of prophecy, you have to, have to. There's no There's no halfway here. You have to be willing to challenge uh, traditions. And that's a big reason why, honestly, prophecy isn't taught uh, in a lot of churches nowadays. Have you noticed that? I'll pause and let you answer. Have you noticed that? I mean, you might not notice that, obviously, if you come to Life Story Church. But if you're looking for a church body to be a part of before you found Life Story Church here in Nashville, you may have discovered that it's not taught in a lot of churches today because challenging traditions can be very expensive for a church. It can be. So if we challenge different traditions, you may chase tithes right out the back door. And you have to be willing to do that if you're wanting to find the truth in the Word of God. And I think we've demonstrated at Life Story Church that we are, not that we want to do that, but that we are willing to to dig past tradition to find the truth. Amen? So the problem with that, with these churches, um, you know, that won't study prophecy because challenging traditions can be costly. Problem with that, and there are many, the problem is this. And can I see our first quote for tonight? One of my favorite quotes of all times, uh, all time comes from Chuck Missler. He said this, Tradition calcifies over the truth, entombing it. So we're looking for the truth, but oftentimes we can't find the truth because tradition has calcified over it, and we've got to break through that calcification barrier to get to the truth. And we're going to do some of that tonight. Truth has been entombed for generations. It truly has. It has been denominationally, different teachings, even in the United States of America, which is relatively a young country. But we're going to go beyond that tonight, being unsealed and unveiled right now. So, so let me ask you a question. If you're a note taker, write it down. We'll come back around or through our teaching, the question will be answered. Why do we study prophecy? Why study prophecy? Now, that's a rhetorical a question, and the answer is and isn't as simple as the previous quote I just shared of Chuck's, obviously, right? The first reason, first thing, studying prophecy, it's a study of where we've been, where we've been, where we are, and where we are going and why. Where we're going and why. 
but also because often we view the, view the Bible as often we uh, view the Bible as just a, a story, right? And I'm not saying me, but oftentimes the Bible is viewed. So we collectively, Christendom, perhaps. The Bible is viewed as just the story of God or the story of Israel, uh, the story of Jesus and us, right? You know, it's got guidelines for living. Um, it's got the gospel. It's got some prophecies too, right? But the reality is that the Bible is not just a story. The Bible is not just a story. Uh, it's not even his story, as we like to say, right? It's not even that that God gave us. This is a book of prophecy. The Word of God, the Bible is a book of prophecy. Did you know that better, better than one of every four verses in the Word of God in the Bible is prophetic? So, I mean, if that's the case, then shouldn't uh, probably one of every four sermons we teach be prophetically relevant? Maybe so, huh? I've always said that. If you can approach the Word of God with this foundational, and that's exactly what it is, foundational understanding about this Bible, okay? Four weeks ago, three weeks ago, whatever it was, message one, we talked about the Bible being the Word of God, and uh, the first two weeks we sought to establish the fact that you can trust it as being essentially an interdimensional key into the heart of God himself, okay? If you can understand that, if you can approach the Word of God with the foundational understanding that this is a book of prophecy, the Bible will come alive for you. So if you're somebody who's been struggling with laboriously reading the Word of God, and as you read it, it just seems laborious, you're reading it just to read it because you know you should, but you don't even necessarily know how you should read it, this is for you tonight, okay? I'm telling you, God will begin to give you revelation as you discover and begin to look for prophecy in his word. Have you ever been reading the Bible and come across uh, something that doesn't seem to fit? Something that doesn't seem to fit God's character, that you, uh, you've, you've come to know him, you've come to seek him and find him and know him in his word, and you read something, you're like, it doesn't seem right. Well, Maybe you pause, but then you move on in your reading, right? Well, rabbinical teaching, okay, ancient rabbis, and they call that a remez. In other words, it's God telling you to dig here. There's something more here. It's more than just the surface layer. Yes, the word of God means what it says and says what it means on a surface layer, but there is a remez layer beneath that that contains even deeper truth and deeper meaning for you just beneath the surface. I'm telling you, God will begin to give you revelation and show you remez teaching in his word if you pray for it and look for it and, and consider the reality that this is a book of prophecy, not just some story, not just some book that has some good guidelines for living a moral life, okay? The New Testament is the Old Testament concealed. Maybe you've heard me say that before, heard Cornelia House say that before. The Old Testament is the New Testament revealed. So the New Testament is the Old Testament concealed. 
Because that, that thread of grace runs through the whole book from Genesis to Revelation, okay? It's all one book. Old Testament, New Testament, it's all one book. The field of science, and this is pretty cool, would refer to the Bible in this way. Uh, MIT ha- coined a phrase for uh, uh, the Bible. They said it contains anticipatory macro codes, That's the scientific word for it. In other words, it has coding within it that reveals the future from the past, meaning it demonstrates also an origin outside of the time domain. How cool is that? It is history detailed in advance. Elements introduced early, elements that make no sense, by the way, uh, in their own time reference, Elements that make no sense within their own time reference, they wouldn't make sense until thousands thousands of years later in some cases. For example, uh, consider, consider Daniel. We've read the book of Daniel, if you're a Bible student. If you haven't, it's incredible. It's a largely prophetic book. If you ever want to understand Revelation and end-time prophecy, you need to read Daniel as well, because Daniel and Revelation go hand in hand. Uh, They are lockstepped. History detailed in advance. Daniel, uh, for example, in Daniel chapter 8, okay, it was written approximately 553 B.C. That's B.C., 553 B.C., okay? Daniel talks about a king and a mighty warrior rising up, okay, for the Greeks that would conquer the region who was ultimately Alexander the Great, the great warrior who we know from history, from historical archives, right? prophesied that he would come onto the scene, and indeed he did in approximately 332 BC. As a matter of fact, the historian Josephus tells a story in his works of Josephus's works of antiquities, tells a story of when when, uh, Alexander the Great was conquering the region, and he came to Jerusalem, and Of course, everybody in Israel knew that he was coming, knew that he had conquered, was a conqueror, and was going to conquer them, surely, right? They knew that he was coming. The high priest of the temple was so perplexed by this that he prayed at night. And again, this is not biblical, but it's in in Josephus' historical account of the times, okay? He wrote that the high priest had, had recorded that he had had a dream. He was so concerned about this, that he was praying about what was going to happen when this warrior came to Jerusalem, and he prayed and prayed and prayed, and that night he had a dream. He had a dream, and in that dream, God told him to take all of his priests and and all of the high priests to the gate, the city gate of Jerusalem, and stand there in all of their white linen and their purple garb and everything else. And it just so happens that when... uh, Alexander and his army came to Jerusalem. They saw all these priests standing out front. They saw the priests standing out front. And the, it records that Alexander's troops were actually surprised that Alexander didn't just send them in, but Alexander himself decided that he would approach these priests. Because apparently, according to Josephus, Alexander recorded that he had had a dream before he had ever left to conquer Israel 
when he was back in his home country, had a dream that when he approached the city, he saw these priests in white robes, and that he was, he was told that he, in his, this dream that he was to approach the high priest. Well, as the story goes, that when he approached the high priest, the high priest then took him, took him and showed him the book of Daniel and showed him where it was prophesied that he would be the big horn, the big horn that would ultimately conquer Persia in Daniel chapter 8. So he uh, 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 treated uh, the high priests and Israel favorably. And they said, will you let us still, uh, you know, on the seventh day, make our, our, our tithe and not, make, not pay taxes on that seventh day so we can do our tithe and everything else. And uh, Alexander agreed. And this is incredible. It's all recorded in uh, Josephus's works of antiquity. So we look at something like Daniel chapter 8, 553 BC, it's recorded. Uh, comes to pass in 332 BC, Alexander comes, and it's recorded by Josephus in the first century AD. It is history being detailed in advance. Of course, Daniel records history in advance so well that many secular uh, 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 historians today say it's too accurate. It could never be real. It must have been written in the 1500s. It must have been written in the 1500s. Yet we have Josephus recording the story of, of Alexander the Great reading Daniel's writings in the first century. So a cool story, but to make the point, this word of God is prophecy. Better than four out of, uh, one out of every four verses is prophetic in nature. Consider the brass serpent on the pole in Numbers chapter 21, for example. Has anybody ever read this scripture and wondered what in the world it was about? I remember when I was younger and I would read it and I would think, well, what in the world? So they put a brass serpent on the pole to held it up so snakes would stop biting the people of Israel? What in the world is that about, right? Well, let's, let me just give you one verse. Can we read that? Numbers chapter 21, verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So everyone bitten by snakes, snakes are attacking the people of Israel. What in the world? So look at this pole and uh, you'll be saved when you look at it. It makes no sense, no sense within its time domain. It really doesn't. But when you take it apart, you see the New Testament revealed in the Old Testament. Brass to the people of Israel was representative of judgment. So brass, it's, a, it's on a brass, it's a, uh, it's a brass pole, right? Representative of judgment. The serpent represented sin to them. So judgment and sin put on a pole. All who looked at it were saved. Okay. It was on a pole. Anybody? And all who looked at it were saved. Does this ring any bells at all to anybody? Well, hopefully it does because in John chapter three, it's explained to us. Verses 14 and 15. Can we see that? And as Moses lifted up the serpents in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, Jesus says. Verse 15, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
It was an integrated design in the Old Testament to be revealed in the New Testament. It was Messiah foreshadowing in the Old Testament. Now look, if you go back, if, you, if this is the first thing you're tuning into in this uh, foundation series, go back and at least watch part two so we can talk, we can give you the history of the text, okay? The new the texts, the New Testament did not come along until much later in the first century writing. These are first century writings. The entire Old Testament had been turned into Greek and the Septuagint by 280 BC, okay? So this is prophetic fulfillment, history detailed in advance. This is type and shadow. Case in point, can I see this next graphic? Look at this. The Old Testament alone, did you know this? The Old Testament alone contains 8,362 predictive ver uh, verses forecasting. Forecasting something to happen. That's 26.8% of the Bible. That's 1,817 different predictions dealing with 703. 737 separate different matters. So 1,817 different predictions dealing with 737 different matters out of 8,362 8, predictive verses. Is this a book of prophecy? Or is this a book of prophecy? Church, the friends, the Bible is a book of prophecy. It is unlike any other book that exists. Okay, this is not a quaint collection of tribal history. Okay, it demonstrates its supernatural origin itself. Itself. One thing that we have to understand as we study the Word of God, if we hope to understand the Word of God, is that context matters. Okay, Foundationally, we need, we need to understand what Maius Carmadeus said in, in uh, uh, the 16th century. Can we see that? In the 16th century, this next graphic, a 16th century Bible scholar and translator by the name of Maius Carmadeus, okay? He was the first to print the complete Bible in English. He said this in the 1500s. It shall greatly help you to understand Scripture if thou mark not only what is spoken or written, but of whom and to whom and at what time and where, to what intent, under what circumstances, considering what came before and what followed after. You want to understand Scripture, you've got to do this. Thus, 2 Timothy, can we look at that? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, when Paul tells us this, it makes a lot more sense. He says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. Why not ashamed? Why not ashamed? Because you rightly divide the word of truth. Rightly dividing it. What does it mean to rightly divide or discern the word of God? It means what Maius Carmadeus said just a moment again. Consider who, what, where, when, why, who wrote it, to what point, to what end, and what purpose, understanding that the word of God itself is meant to, uh, meant to instruct, it is meant to correct, right? All of it. 
understand this as well, that Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was a Jew. So allegory, metaphors, language, it matters. How we speak to each other, they spoke to each other, but in a different way culturally. For example, I'll say this. If, uh, you know, if I was to ask Carolyn what she was going to be doing for Independence Day, she would know that I'm asking her what she's going to do on July 4th, right? But 2,000 years from now, if we were by some uh, cruel twist of fate still here, right? <laughs> if we were still here and they found that letter that I had written and knew nothing about America, they, wouldn't, they would have no idea that I was talking about July 4th because it's a figure of speech, right? I'm talking about something else by using different language. Well, the same difference for the Jewish people, the Jewish culture. Jesus was a Jew. He spoke like a Jew. So did the disciples, okay? Allegory. They spoke, they spoke in allegory. Yes, they did. They used metaphors. They did. Generally, though, you'll find that as you study the Word of God, when a metaphor is used, it's quickly explained. So... You have heard it said that we're the bride of Christ, right? Case in point, the bride of Christ. Well, our groom is Hebrew. Is he not? Of course he is. What does a bridal ceremony look like for a Jew? You know, if you want hope, listen, listen to this, and I'm not going to get into it too much. We've got a special message coming up on just this subject okay, uh, in September. So I'm not going give to give it all away to you guys, but what I can tell you briefly is that the Jewish wedding ceremony, what would happen? Well, the, if the groom had sought to, and I've told you this, I think, last week or the week before, if the groom sought to have a bride's hand, he would talk to his father. The fathers would talk to each other. They would work out a, a betrothal price to pay the debts, okay? It wasn't buying her. It was a gift that she deserved. The father and the groom would go to the, the bride's house, and they would offer her the family cup uh, to drink of the wine. If she said yes, she would drink. If she said no, it was always her choice. If it was a no, uh, the groom would say, Father, take this cup from me, right? And he would. they'd return home. But if she said yes, okay? If she said yes, then they would return and they would begin building an addition to the father's house for the bride and groom to live. A house, mansion that has many rooms, so on and so forth, right? When, uh, the, when the groom returned and the bride didn't know when he would return, he didn't, they didn't know. They would blow a horn when he returned, okay? And she, he would scoop her up, and they'd go back for the wedding celebration, okay? And they'd spend seven days in a bridal chamber. Seven days sound like seven-year tribulation, perhaps, anyway. That's just a teaser for what we've got coming in a few weeks. Well, let me read this, John chapter 14, verse 1 through 3. Can we see that? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you 
may also, may be also. I mean, is anybody else listening tonight just filled with a general feeling of hope when we realize this? Okay, I hope so. So considering all of this, this book that we have that is future told in advance through these ways and terms and interpretation, okay, where we've been, where we are, and where we're going and why, right? Where we've been. Let's just talk about that briefly. Where have we been? Okay, this is the, when you're talking about Bible prophecy, it is far least uh, controversial part of this whole equation. Most people concede that over a hundred plus prophecies of Christ's first coming were fulfilled when he came. But honestly, anything beyond that, anything beyond that, it really comes down to how you interpret scripture on a foundational level, a foundational level. This is foundation. So how do we interpret scripture will determine how we interpret Bible prophecy. Makes sense, right? Well, I want us all to understand why we interpret what we study the way we do. Can I see this first graphic on the screen? This will look familiar to some of you who've been having this conversation with lately. On your far left, you'll see a word that might not be familiar to us. It's amillennial, in the middle, postmillennial, to the right, premillennial. The left, again, amillennial, also referred to sometimes as preterism, postmillennial as reconstructionism. Essentially, what this breaks down to is if you are amillennial, without getting too highbrow here, it means you interpret Scripture allegorically, okay? If you are premillennial, you interpret Scripture literally. That means you believe that it means what it says, and it says what it means, and you also believe in the remez, deeper understanding of the Word of God, but you also believe that it means what it says, and it says what it means. That, <laughs> that you didn't know that you had something called hermeneutics, did you? Even if you're a brand new Christian, or basically your interpretation of text is your hermeneutics, okay? So allegory, it's allegorical to the left. This is a, it's a bunch of stories, in other words, and poetry that really don't mean what it says, but, but it is, uh, I mean, Google the word allegory, right? Poetry, figures of speech that mean something that is not coming out right and saying. Or you believe literally that it means what it says and it's saying what it means, okay? So you're amillennial or premillennial or postmillennial in the middle. Can we see the next graphic? This is important because the next picture, we see those three again at the top, amillennial, postmillennial, premillennial. If we are premillennial, and we don't just interpret the scripture as allegory, we believe what it says and that it says what it means, there are still divisions among the body of Christ. When it comes to end-time prophecy, which is eschatology, eschatology is the definition, uh, is defined by studying end-time prophecy, in other words, okay? So post, some people believe that post-tribulation, mid-tribulation, or pre-tribulation, they're all literalists when it comes to the Word of God, but they inter still interpret 
the literal text differently, okay? So we have to understand this, to understand how we interpret the Word of God. We are, after all, doing an introduction to Bible prophecy, right? Well, people have different reasons why they might be post-trib, mid-trib, and or pre-trib, okay? Let me say this before we get any deeper into that. One thing that we can all agree on, whether you're post-trib, mid-trib, or pre-trib, is that we all believe that the Word of God says what it means and means what it says, so we can all be in unity, and that's what matters, okay? We believe in the same gospel. We believe in how we should be interpreting the Word of God as literal. If we have differing opinions, whether it's pre, mid, post, whatever, we should still be able to be in unity, okay? And there are different people in our church that have differing views on that, and that's fine. Uh, I'll go into detail as far as why I, where I fall in, the, in this and why uh, shortly. But, you know, literal versus allegorical, post, mid, pre, where do we fall, why, all that stuff. I mean, you, any guesses on where the church is? How about the, any guesses on where the church has fallen on this issue traditionally? Let me ask you that. I'm going to pause because I've been talking nonstop, somebody respond. What's your guess on the feed? What's your guess on where the church has fallen on this issue traditionally? It's kind of a loaded question, because at this point, it depends really on how you grew up, doesn't it? It really does. There's a lot that separates us denominationally on how we grew up, right? But while you're thinking about that and while you're answering, let me show you this. Let me show you some divisions of theology. Let's see this next graphic. If you've never been to seminary, now you don't need to go because I'm going to give you all the divisions of theology, right? Just kidding. (laughs) Bibliology, there it is. (laughs) It's the study of the Bible. Theology, proper attributes of God. Christology, a study of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pneumatology, a study of the Holy Spirit. You didn't know you could study all these different things and have fancy names for them, did you? Okay. Angelology, angels, study of fallen angels, unfallen, so on and so forth. Anthropology, a study of man. Soteriology, the study of salvation. Ecclesiology, the study of the church. And eschatology is a study of the end times and of the last things. Does anybody notice what's missing here? Okay. If you're a student of Chuck Missler's, I know you already know. What's missing is Israelology, okay? It's the study of Israel uh, as an instrument of God's program for man. Five-sixths of the Bible, listen to me on this, five-sixths of the Bible deal with Israel. It's kind of a big deal. So it's kind of a big deal that we, we have a correct interpretation of the word of God and of prophecy. If we're supposed to take it literally, we need to be taking it literally. We can't be reading about Israel, but not taking it literally. So we think it's talking about us somehow, right? There's a big difference when God's talking to Israel and when he's talking to the church at different times throughout scripture. Again, it comes back to Maius Carmadios. Context matters, right? The majority of the church can find that its theological roots trace can be traced all the way back to Alexandria, Egypt, by the way. Egypt, of all things. And to the second century is how far back this stuff goes. 
So, here we are. Any guesses on where the church has fallen traditionally in the interpretation of Scripture and end-time prophecy? Is it literal or allegorical? Well, let's go back to Alexandria to answer that question. You guys ready for story time? Let's do some story time. Maybe you've heard of the name Simon Magus before. Maybe you haven't. Um, let me tell you briefly who he was. Sorry about that. Simon Magus was a Asian. Asians are famous, most famous in Christendom for having stored and saved the Dead Sea Scrolls in the caves at Qumran to be discovered in 1948, um, preserving texts from every book in the Bible except for the book of Esther and many, many other extra-biblical texts as well, okay? Well, he was an Essene of Qumran, and they were waiting and waiting and waiting uh, for the Messiah, for Jesus to come. They had actually separated themselves from society so they wouldn't be infected by bad theology coming from the Sadducees and the Pharisees uh, and everyone else, all the different sects. Um, and so I always like to say, you know, they probably would have been the first to recognize Jesus' comings because they preserved the text and the prophecy and knew them like the back of their hands, but they wouldn't have necessarily been the first to see him because they had removed themselves from the culture. So we can't completely remove ourselves from the culture. After all, we are ambassadors of Christ, strangers in a strange land, representing the interests of our king in a foreign nation or land, right? So in any case, um, uh, Dr. Ken Johnson believes that uh, the boyhood, during the boyhood years of Christ, he likely went to uh, uh, Qumran, to the Essenes out there, but rather than being taught by them, likely taught them himself. And there's, again, other early church fathers, early church father writings that support that. It's a really cool thing to look into. Um, Qumran was actually referred to as Damascus back then as well. So some think that when Paul was knocked off his high horse on the road to Damascus, it wasn't necessarily Syria. It could have been Qumran. In any case, Simon Magus, he got tired of waiting for the Messiah to come with the Essenes in Israel and left for the Essenes in Egypt, who this group of Essenes was already infected with Gnostic, Kabbalist, uh, what we would call New Agey, basically Babylonian religions and influence infected. Uh, all the Gnostic universities were in Alexandria, Egypt, okay? So many of the Gnostic perversions in our faith today and the Gnostic twisting of scriptures and writings and whatnot all came out of Alexandria, Egypt. That's why we have to pay attention to where the codexes that we have for our Bibles, where did they come from? Are they Alexandrian? So on and so forth. Where's the influence there when we're translating? In any case, he left, went to the Egyptian Essenes was infected by that uh, demonology, essentially. Uh, and then he came back. He, while he left, he missed Jesus, everything they were waiting for. By the time he came back, Jesus had already been there, been crucified, been resurrected, and everything else. And the disciples were making hay with spreading the gospel all over the region. And this is where he comes and bumps into 
Simon and uh, Simon Peter and everybody. Let's, let's take a look at Acts chapter 8, verse 18 through 23. And when Simon saw that through the laying on, that's Simon Magus, saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. So he's making a living off uh, uh, this uh, spiritual stuff. He offered them money, verse 19, saying, Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money will perish with you, verse 20, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money, verse 21. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, verse 22. We learned what that meant last week, didn't we? Repent, change your mind, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray God if perhaps uh, the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. Verse 23, for I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. So there's a lot more going on here, obviously. It's not in the story, in the Bible, just the primary uh, biblical text here, because Peter's got some strong opinions about him for reasons that aren't necessarily recorded. So we have to read into it a little bit, okay? So we have to conjecture a little bit, but not, you know, we're, we, you can get carried away with that. We can't do it too much because we're anchored by the word of God, right? But we learn more about this guy. We learn more about this guy from the disciples of the disciple John. You know, the disciples themselves, the apostles, they had disciples themselves. They had people that followed them, people that they taught. Can I see this next graphic? The apostle John, did you know that he had somebody by the name of Polycarp, who's got lots of writings that are recorded in the Anti-Nicene Fathers collection, which records everything written by the disciples of the disciples, everything written pre-90 A.D., First century writings we can look to. So if you're ever wondering, well, what did John really mean by this? Well, let's, why don't you go see what Polycarp wrote about that? What's his uh, take on that passage of Scripture? Because Polycarp actually lived with John for 20 years in his house. So I think Polycarp might know what John really meant by that. You know, So we should value these early church fathers' writings. So the Apostle John taught Polycarp. Polycarp then taught Arrhenius. Okay? Arrhenius and Justin Martyr, both of them, were actually students of the Apostle John. Well, Arrhenius wrote this in Against Heresies about Simon Magus. He said, Simon called Magnuses exorcisms, and incantations. He, call, he called, Simon called, Magnusist, exorcisms and incantations, love potions and charms, as well as those beings who are called paredri, familiars, demons, right? Or onerapompi, in obviously the original language, dream senders, familiars, essentially demonic spirits that would mess with your dreams as well. He called upon those, according to Arrhenius. Arrhenius, who was a student of Polycarp, Polycarp, who was a student of John, says this about Simon Magus of Acts chapter 8. Well, Hippolytus, who was another disciple of the... Uh, uh, apostles, said this of Simon Magus on the same graphic. He said this, he, Simon Magus, 
allegorized much scripture to support his teachings, especially Genesis. So he would take scripture out of context. He would allegorize it to make profit for himself, tried to bribe the apostles for the ability to do the kinds of work that they were doing by the power of the Holy Spirit because he didn't have it and wanted it, but didn't want it how you can only get it because obviously he was making a profit here. He's, he's utilizing demonic tricks he learned with the Essenes and Gnostics, Babylonian religions, calling on disembodied fallen angels, calling on um, disembodied fallen angels, uh, or disembodied Nephilim, excuse me, there's the word, disembodied Nephilim, uh, Enochian, Enochian worldview stuff here, okay, which we may yet get to in our study of spiritual warfare on Sunday mornings, we'll see. It'll be some heavy lifting if we do. In any case, that's where he came from, Alexandria's Essenes into Israel, and now he's, he's trying to present himself as Messiah. He began to present himself as Messiah, began to say we can all be God. Jesus was just that Jesus was God, but no more God than you can be. God with the little G, right? We're all gods. You've heard all, it's all Gnostic crap, guys, seriously. So this is, pardon me, but it is, you know, so this is Simon Magus. Why am I telling you this? Well, hang with me. John Mark, you know John Mark. John Mark, who had a tiff with Paul, and they split ways in ministry, and they split ways, but at the end of Paul's ministry, he asked specifically for John Mark to come and visit him. You know, so that happens sometimes with relationships and in ministry and whatnot, but they were united by the brotherhood of Christ above all else. John Mark planted a church in Alexandria, Egypt, and he was there until Magus Gnostics killed him. But the church continued to prosper, continued to prosper under good leadership. They had other good leadership come in until about 150 A.D., Clement, you may have heard this name, Clement of Alexandria and Origen of Alexandria, they took over John Mark's church in around 150 AD, okay? Uh, this is where that Magus Gnostic allegorizing the text infected the church. You will remember that Paul wrote Colossians specifically to combat Gnostic twisting of the gospel and text. Uh, you'll remember that 1 John, written by John, was written to confront Gnostic twisting of the gospel and the text, okay? So they, the apostles have been fighting off allegory and twisting of scripture for a long time. Finally, finally here in 150 AD, allegory enters the church. And thus, replacement theology becomes prevalent in the church. Oh, the Jews, they crucified their Messiah. So whenever you read Israel now in future prophecy, that's the church. That's you now, because you're a descendant of Abraham, because you've been grafted in. You're taking over for Israel. Nonsense. The first church fathers never believed that, never taught that. And they began 
uh, amillennialism, bringing it all back to amillennialism, premillennialism, allegorical versus literal, allegory, premillennialism enters the church in 150 AD. At that same time, there are two different schools of thought, two different teachers in a corrupt church, a corrupt uh, setting uh, full of Gnostic teaching, mixing with church teaching. There were two different sects of people, one led by Valentinians, Valentine, Valentinian is what they were called, and Basildians. Two different groups of people were arguing back and forth in uh, academia circles. Uh, the Valentinians were teaching predestination, okay, that you were created with a destiny. There's nothing you can do to change it. The Bastillians were teaching that you were born sinless and you could stay that. Again, this is the church, okay? This is the church in Alexandria. This is what it's become. Some te- uh, sharing Gnostic teachings saying you're predestined to be saved or damned. Nothing you can do about it. Basildians within the Alexandrian church are teaching now that you're born sinless and that you can stay that way if you're good enough, right? Do these teachings sound familiar to us even still today? Okay. Well, let me continue the story a little further. Let's jump forward to the 5th century AD now, okay? Augustine is debating somebody within the church again uh, named Pelagius, okay? Pelagius is teaching, again, legalism, that you're born sinless and that you can stay that way, that that works can save you. That doesn't sit right with Augustine. He knows the true gospel, right? Well, he is losing most of the public arguments that he's having with Pelagius. And what happens in the fifth century here is Augustine goes looking for help in the annals of church history, and he finds these Valentinian writings of predestination, and he discovers that he can win his argument with the works-based salvation if it was decided before you were ever born. And so he wins the argument, unfortunately, in 412 AD, the Council of Carthage condemned Pelagius and said, you lose the argument, that's heresy, stop teaching that. Unfortunately, Augustine was also reprimanded for false teaching. All of that, though, was already in text and written down. So, fast forward to the year 1536, and the reformers had an issue, had an issue with the Pope. And the Pope was ruling as a supreme leader over all of the nations of Europe. And the Pope was saying to England, the King of England, you better do what I say, you better get in line, the, 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 the King of France, the King of whatever country, essentially leading them as a supreme leader. And Calvin, John Calvin, didn't know what to do to liberate his people from this bad teaching of the Pope. Well, Calvin, you have to understand, there was something called interdict, that any time a king of a nation uh, wouldn't do what the Pope said, the Pope would declare interdict. And what is that? Essentially, it means the Pope would declare the entire nation damned and lost. Because the king wouldn't do what the pope said. The king is supposedly appointed by God, but the pope is higher than the king. So he would declare the whole nation lost. Well, what would happen essentially is if these people who are Catholics, largely, would fear that their soul was now damned, they would rise up as the idea and overthrow their king. So the pope has got power over the king because he controls the people through religion. Okay? Well, Calvin 
did his homework and discovered some old writings of Augustine's and figured that, wow, Augustine here is writing predestination. Well, if, prede if we're pre all predestined, then there's no way that the Pope can damn any of us because we're either damned or saved before we're even born, right? So that's the, our get-out-of-the-jail-free card. Well, this teaching that he borrowed from Augustine, which Augustine later recanted and was scolded for, he had borrowed from the Gnostic Valentinian influence all the way back in Alexandria, Egypt, now is here being used by Calvin in 1536, and it catches on like wildfire among the reformers. So why? Because it's what they needed to free themselves and the people from the Pope. It's a long story, right? This is how interpreting the word of God allegorically entered the realm of Christian thought and is still there to this day. The first church the disciples, uh, the disciples of the disciples, never interpreted end time prophecy as allegory. Never. This is of paramount importance, and it took us a long time to get here. I know. Thanks for sticking sticking with us today. But it's of paramount importance. Why? Because your view, your view of this will determine how seriously you take the biblical text or not. Is it allegory or does it mean what it says and says what it means? The early church fathers, the disciples and the early church, the disciples of the disciples took it literally. This, this interpreting things allegorically, was, it was an infection that has bred its way, spread its way, through the circulatory system of the church over hundreds of years, going all the way back to Alexandria. Mm. <laughs> it's of paramount, paramount importance. Traditional, traditional, denominational eschatology, you have to understand, is amillennial, and therefore it has problems with the harpazo or the rapture, okay? Why? Because they say that all prophecy is already fulfilled. And even in many, many churches today uh, uh, that are considered Protestant, they still allegorize prophecy. Why? Because the reformers did a great job of liberating the gospel from the Catholic overlords, but they never addressed eschatology and they never addressed the problem of allegorizing scripture. As a matter of fact, they probably thought they didn't need to because many of them, if you look back at the 1599 Geneva Bible, the original Bible, you can go look at it at a museum. Uh, I can't remember where it is. It's in Europe. In the footnotes around, you know, we have study Bibles now, but in the footnotes, as throughout Revelation, when they're talking about the Antichrist, you'll see the reformers writing, uh, Wycliffe and, and whatnot, writing, and the, the Antichrist writing, and that's the Pope, right? I mean, so, the, but the lines are more blurred between Catholicism and Protestantism uh, now more than ever, and the fact that there are sh some shared... Uh, beliefs in regards to how you interpret scripture today make the lines blurred all the more. Traditionally, though, most churches, and we're in the South, so you might not know that, but if you travel to the North, North Country, 
when you travel overseas, you'll discover that they say all prophecy is fulfilled. They say the great falling away, and we'll talk about that next week. Um, we're going to do a part two to an introduction of prophecy. They say that that was the Reformation, the falling away. They say that we're in the millennial reign right now. Well, that's a thousand years. It's been 2,000 years almost now, right? So it's a problem. So if we are going to parade around as literalists, people who interpret the word of God literally, like the ch first church fathers were, then we, then we are purveyors. We need to own this. Purveyors of the most preposterous belief in biblical Christianity, that Jesus Christ will appear in the clouds at the last trump, and we will be brought up physically to meet him in the air. I think that we should have a good handle on where we get our theology if we're going to do that, right? So having a brief history of amillennialism explained now, and we're about out of time, having that explained, let me share one thing with you, and we're going to tease what we're going to get into next week. Moving forward as a premillennial literalist, we'll assume that you're there now, right? Uh, can I direct your eyes again to image number two on the screen? Can we see that? Image number two. We have, what we have is post, mid, and pre-rapture theories. Pre-what though? Mid-what though? Post-what though? Well, of course, I mean a seven-year tribulation period because that's what the Word of God literally says there will be. If we're not allegorizing a seven-year tribulation, it's talked about in Daniel, it's talked about in Revelation, then we're taking it literally. Can I see the next graphic? There it is, yes. Graphic number three. We can see if we're literalists, there are still divisions among us on how to interpret these three uh, rapture theories. Is it before the seven-year tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel? What is that? We'll get there momentarily. Or in the middle, pre-wrath, uh, pre some even say. Or is it post, at the end of the seven-year tribulation, just before Jesus comes, his second coming? Okay, keeping in mind that when we talk about Jesus coming back as a church, when I talk about it, when I'm looking forward to Jesus coming back, I'm talking about a rapture. He doesn't actually set his foot down on earth. He appears in the clouds, and we meet him there in the twinkling of an eye in a moment, right? The second coming is when he puts his foot down on earth. And there's different verses that talk about each of those occurrences. And if you get them mixed up, it can be really confusing. And we'll probably get to that next week too, but uh, we'll see, we'll see. In any case, in any case, this seven-year tribulation, we find it in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 well, chapter 9, really. I just want to read you these three verses, though. Let's read verse 24 through 26, can we? Seventy weeks are determined for you, your people, and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until, the, 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 until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven plus 62 is 69, right? The street shall be built again. 
the wall, and even in troublesome times. And that's important, the streets and the wall. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people, verse 26, still, and the people of the prince who is to come later. So the people who did this to Messiah, keep that in mind, the first time, of the, he'll be of the, the Antichrist who is to come. He'll be of those people. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Seventy weeks are determined. Seventy weeks. What did it say? Seven and sixty-two, sixty-nine, and then the Messiah is cut off. But seventy weeks are determined. Sixty-nine will happen before before the Messiah is cut off. But when did they say it was going to happen from the time from the time that uh, uh, from the going forth of the command to restore to uh, and build Jerusalem until the prince there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall built again. Okay, so basically we need to find in history when a decree was issued to rebuild from this point going forward of this prophecy, from the point of this prophecy going forward, it was there a point when a decree was issued to rebuild the streets and also the wall, which is important because a wall is defensive. They can defend themselves. It initiates liberty, right? Okay. When that happens, count this many days, 69 weeks. In Hebrew culture, that's... Uh, um, a week is seven years, okay? So, when I see this next graphic, we find, we find that a decree to build, decree to build Jerusalem, the streets and the walls, was given by Artaxerxes on March 14th, 445 BC, okay? Uh, you'll notice the palm trees on the graphic because we go into this at gr much greater depth in our Palm Sunday teaching. So if you really want to get that, this in full depth, I want you to go check out that video from this past spring. It's surely still on YouTube, okay? A decree went forward on March 14th, 1445. If you start counting forward from that point, can I see the next picture real quick? Let's go to the next one. It was, how do we know it was decreed? Because on this Cyrus cylinder, as it's called, the Cyrus Artaxerxes, okay, Artaxerxes, who is relation to Esther, okay, uh, uh, his mom, Vashi, his mother-in-law, Esther, issued this decree and recorded it and gave us the date, the year, and everything on this cylinder. Can we go back to the last picture now? If we count forward, that's in the Museum of London, by the way. Uh, what an archaeological find, by the way. Isn't it funny how all of the archaeological finds only ever prove the Bible true? Hmm. Anyway, uh, if we count forward 69 weeks or 476 years or exactly 173,880 days later to the day, we would arrive at... April 6th, 13 AD, and the 10th day in the month of Nisan, which is Passover season, 32 AD. What happened on the 10th of Nisan? That was the day. You guessed it. Uh, can we see that next graphic? Probably two forward. 
of the menorah that shows the Feast of the Lord. One more, there we go. You see that the menorah records the, the Feast of the Lord, and we'll probably talk more about that next week too. But that the Passover was on the 14th. That's when Jesus was crucified. On the 10th, they would bring the lamb in for an inspection, and he was supposed to be spotless, perfect. The lamb was presented. You can find that in Exodus chapter 12, verse 3 and 6. It was that day that he rode into Jerusalem for inspection, Jesus did, 32 AD on the 10th of Nisan, to the day 173,880 days to the day from the decree, Jesus is riding a donkey in on the 10th of Nisan, 32 AD. And as he's riding in, the people are laying down palm branches, reciting Psalm 118, verse 24 through 26, Hosanna. Save now, save now, Hosanna. What a beautiful, beautiful fulfillment of prophecy. And then what happened? Messiah was cut off. We have now been waiting from that point for 2,000 years for the 70th week to begin. We have been in this age of grace ever since he was cut off, ever since the church was born, till now. Which brings us to, can I see this one more graphic? We're out of time. We're keep going now. Are we, you guys are all right. You're snuggly on your couches at home, right? Here we see a timeline of it all. Take a screenshot of that if you'd like, guys. The 70 weeks, everything that has happened, the decree of Cyrus, all the way March 14th, 70 weeks, all the way the church age, we're waiting for that tribulation, seven years of tribulation, and then a thousand-year millennial reign. And why do we get there? Because we interpret the Word of God literally. We don't believe that it's allegory, okay? That time of Jacob's trouble, that seven-year tribulation, is the 70th week. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 says that the archangel Michael will stand up, and at that time there will be trouble upon the earth and trouble upon Israel as there has never been trouble upon any nation in the history of the world. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. What happens during this seven-year tribulation period? Well, we just got done. Uh, how long did we study Revelation, Andrew? Was it nine months or 11 months, something like that, right? It was a long time. <laughs> a year, right? Yeah, so... Uh, what happens during the seven-year tribulation? Peace deal. The Antichrist confirms a covenant with many. Uh, sacrifices begin again. Halfway through the seven-year tribulation, the Antichrist figure, the world leader, breaks the deal, stops the sacrifice, uh, sets up a, a, an abomination of desolation in the third temple. Antichrist is revealed. One world order, one world currency, Boom. So, let me show you one more thing before we close. In regards to this pre-tribulational rapture, mid-tribulational rapture, post-tribulational rapture, you know, when I uh, was young, I was raised uh, in our house. We, my parents, when we talked about this, they were generally pre-tribulation rapture folks. 
Well, as I grew, I began to study, and I thought, well, you know, we'll kind of, it would maybe make sense for it to be a mid-trib rapture um, because, you know, Jesus ministered for three and a half years. The Great Tribulation will be three and a half years, the back half, the seven years. So maybe I'm trying to do some math and figure stuff out. And then I studied, stumbled onto some pages that really confused a lot of Scripture about the second coming of Christ with Scriptures about the rapture of the church. And it was really confused a lot of stuff too, but it made a great case. And I really started thinking that maybe the great delusion of the end times would be this whole rapture theology until I continued studying and studied my way all the way back around into uh, being firmly encamped in um, a pre-tribulation theology. And that's where I am now. Um, So let me just give you a few reasons as to why. Can I see this first graphic? There are differing beliefs. And again, if you're pre, mid, or post, we don't need to let this cause disunity between us because we all, all three camps interpret the word of God literally. And so we're on the right track there. And we should, we should be sharing in the same gospel of, of grace. So this shouldn't, uh, this shouldn't cause anger or anything else. Uh, but there are differing beliefs, pre, mid, post, post-tribulation. There are some problems with that uh, uh, by uh, many, uh, in many's opinion. First of all, if you, are, if you believe in imminence, and that's a popular theory, or even if you don't believe in imminence, we look at the times and we think he's supposed to come any time now, right? So we should be looking for him to come. Well, he's not going to be if we're looking at pre if we're looking for post-trib, okay? We're going to have to live through some uh, torture here on earth, right? A post-tribulation rapture requires the church to be here during the 70th week, which is actually the time of Jacob's trouble, not the Ecclesia's trouble, okay? Israel and the church, they are mutually exclusive in Daniel chapter 26. The church experiences God's wrath, if that's the case, which, you know, we are promised not to experience in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, and in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. How can the bride come with him as well, and the myriads, as Jude says, come with him, the saints and angels come with him, if we're here, okay? And then who are, who are in the sheep and goats? Okay, judgment of Matthew 25, if that's the case. And how can the virgins of Matthew 25 buy oil if they don't already have the mark of the beast? These are problems. Can we see the next graphic? Problems with the mid-tribulation theory. Well, the mid-trib views, are uh, they build on limited scripture, no support historically. There's not a historical mid-trib camp as you look through ancient church writings, okay? Uh, The 70th week is defined by covenant enforced by the coming world leader, according to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, okay? The great tribulation equals the last half of the 70th week, according to Matthew 24, and the leader cannot be revealed until after the rapture, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9, or 6 through 9. So there's some problems with that. Another thing, uh, and you can come back to me here, is that many people, in regards to pre-tribulation rapture theory, they'll say, well, that's a new idea. You know, that only came around in the 1800s, Darby and whatnot. They came up with that 
And uh, that's just, you know, it's a new idea and it's a bad teaching. And people never believed in a pre-tribulational rapture before the 1850s. To that, I say nonsense. Can we see the next graphic? Pre-tribulation eschatology is not a new idea. It's talked about in the Epistle of Barnabas, which dated A.D., 100. Arrhenius wrote about it in Against Heresies. Hippolytus, a disciple of Arrhenius, wrote about it in the second century. Justin Martyr wrote it again. Remember, uh, uh, he was a disciple of Polycarp, wrote about it in the Dialogue of Trypho. And Ephraim the Syrian wrote about it in the fourth century. That's a way earlier than the 1850s, okay? I mentioned earlier that the church fathers, the early church fathers, were uh, premillennialists, and they believed the word of God literally, and case in point, and we'll, we'll start to close down here. Case in point, Ephraim of Nisibis wrote in AD 306, he lived between 306 and 373, hard to date the writing, but this is one of his writings. He said this, can we see this next one? For all the saints... For all the saints and elect of God are gathered prior to the tribulation that is to come and are taken to the Lord lest they see the confusion that is to overwhelm the world because of our sins. And that is Ephraim of Nesibis. On the, his sermon title here is On the Last Times, the Antichrist, and the End of the World. That's like the best sermon title ever. I want to borrow it sometime. <laughs> and write my own, for sure. So, 1 Corinthians, what's it say to me? 1 Corinthians, chapter, let's say, see what Paul says, verse, chapter 15, verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, we shall be changed. Last trump here denotes that it's time to leave in Hebrew culture, by the way. The trump sounds, and the last camp moves out. Whenever they were traveling through the desert, and they were going to move the tent of meeting and everything else, and follow the cloud by day and the fire by night, and they're traveling through the desert, they'd all line up, and they would blow. When the last trump sounded, that's when they knew the last tr camp moved out. And that's what we're waiting for now, church. So I, I hope you've been enlightened tonight. I hope this has been encouraging for you guys tonight. That's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for the next shoe to drop. What is prophecy all about? It's about where we've been, where we are, where we're going, where are we? Well, as I've said, I think most concede that 100 plus, where we've been, 100 plus prophecies were fulfilled by Jesus' first coming. For the second, for the literalists, for the literalists, the 69 weeks of Daniel, we're waiting for that completion and we're waiting for the 70th week to begin. We're waiting for the feasts of the Lord to be fulfilled as well. Where we are right now, right now in the world of prophecy, really it's all about where we're going, isn't it? Because we see things happening that, are perhaps leading us to believe that we might be going somewhere real soon. In the realm of Bible prophecy, we are only where we are because of where we have been. And where we are going is so much more incredible 
what we're likely about to witness where we are, I tell you what. So what should we be watching for? Well, we'll, we'll dig into that a little bit next week, okay? One might say we're, one might say we're on rapture watch, perhaps. But we'll get into that. We'll get into that next week. With that, we'll close tonight. A little bit over time, but I hope you've been edified this evening. We love you guys so much. Again, if you've been touched by this, uh, if you've been enlightened, if you've been taught by this, if you've learned something tonight, please share the video. Please like the video, comment on the video, share the video. Let's get it out there. This is the word of God. This is the word of truth, okay? And we're... we're we believe that it says what it means, means what it says, and we're trying to rightly divide it within its context so we can look at the world around us, what's happening, and discern from the Word of God where we are, what's about to happen, and where this world is going. So fear not. Look, at if, When you understand all of this, there's no fear. As I said on Sunday morning, we understand that if everything that's happening in the world right now is prophetic, and we're interpreting that literally, that must mean that Jesus can't be far behind. Amen? So uh, look up, keep your head up. Uh, uh, look up, pack up, we're going up. Isn't that what, uh, I can't remember who used to say that anyway. Uh, we love you guys so much. Have a blessed night. Uh, may the Lord bless you, keep you, make his face to shine upon you. Uh, may you walk and go in his favor. And we'll see you Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. at Rutledge West up the McCrory Lane exit in Pegram, Tennessee. In Jesus' name, amen. We love you guys. <laughs>